Bibles to Judges chapter 16. <clears throat> Judges chapter 16, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 tonight. The title is Wandering from God's Path. Wandering from God's Path. Solomon said in Proverbs 4, 26 through 27, Ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or the left. Remove your foot from evil. The word ponder there means to weigh mentally. <clears throat> to weigh mentally, to think about the path that you're walking and to let your ways be established in the Lord and to not turn from them. In the, uh, another translation, it reads like this. Let your eyes look forward. Fix your gaze straight ahead. Carefully consider the path for your feet and all your ways will be established. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Keep your feet away from evil. And as I said, the word uh, translated ponder means to weigh or to make level, and it's related to a word that means scales. In Socrates' final speech before he drank the hemlock, he said, The unexamined life is not worth living. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. The Lord is weighing our ways. He weighs our hearts as well as our actions, and we had better do the same thing. Life, as you know, is too short, and it goes by real quick. It's too valuable to be wasted on the temporary things that are, that are not important. And if we're walking in the way of wisdom, God promises to protect our path, He promises to direct our path, and He promises to perfect our path. All that foolishness can offer us is danger, detours, and disappointments that end, and that in the end lead to death. So it shouldn't be that hard to make the right choice. But now in Samson's case, he had trouble staying on the right path, being where he was supposed to be. He always seemed to be wandering off the right path onto evil pathways. And this problem was obvious with Samson from the very beginning of his life, experiences that we see recorded in Scripture. His wandering feet, first of all, led him to Timnah, where the ungodly Philistines live. And they got him in trouble because his eyes and heart went wandering after a Philistine girl. Not long after that, when he was traveling with his parents, he did some more wandering. Remember, he wandered off uh, into some vineyards, that were off limits to him because he was a Nazarite. Places where Nazarites would be wise to avoid because of their restrictions regarding the fruit of the vine. But you see, a rebel doesn't walk on the proper pathway. You know, it's kind of the attitude, hey, nobody tells me where I'm to go. Nobody tells me what to do. I, I, I'll go where I want. And they'll ignore all the signposts, all the signs giving the right directions, and they'll take the path you know, in their rebellious spirit that wants to, to, to take uh, its own, uh, but it takes it to its own danger and destruction. You know, when we take that path that's, that God has laid out for us, they're, they're, they're dangerous and they can destroy us. Remember in one of our earlier studies, after Samson took his little trip through the forbidden, uh, forbidden vineyards, he was met, remember, by a lion 
wanting to destroy him? Satan, who is like a lion, a roaring lion, Peter said, seeking who can devour, they flourish. And they flourish where one leaves the path of obedience. There is a lion waiting for you the moment that you leave God's path. Now, in the last days of Samson's life, he was guilty of wandering again. This time, his wandering spirit leads him back among the heathen Philistines, who were the oppressors of Israel, and then into some big problems. And so our study tonight focuses on, focuses on Samson's last days. So now in chapter 16, verse 1, it reads, Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. Close to finishing Samson's 20 years as Israel's judge, he wanders off to Gaza. Gaza was one of the five major Philistine cities three miles inland from the Mediterranean coast. Now in Gaza, Samson sees a harlot. And he defiles himself in a very shameful way. And there are two Hebrew words commonly used for prostitutes. One word refers to priests and priestesses who performed sexual acts in the service of pagan gods. The other word refers to a common prostitute like the one that Samson was keeping company with. What Samson was doing was a great sin. Joseph said in Genesis 39.9 when Potiphar's wife was trying to seduce him. He said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Notice he called it a great wickedness, a sin. Who was it against? God. When a person falls into a great sin, it's not by accident. You know, we, get, we oh, well, you know, it was, I couldn't help myself. I couldn't resist. And I, you know, you could resist. You didn't resist. There are definite and preventable reasons why it happens. The one who falls did a number of things before the sin took place. And those various things is what laid down the groundwork for the great sin to happen. This was true of Samson. Something, some temptation, you know, you see or you hear, you begin to dwell on it, you begin to think about it, you begin to entertain it, instead of saying, Lord, remove this wicked thought from my mind, or being in prayer, staying in prayer, until God removes that thought. But usually we entertain that thought, and then guess what? Then we flesh it out. This was true of Samson. It says, he saw the harlot. Now, seeing a harlot... First thing you should do is run away. He saw the harlot. He paved the way for his great sin. His moral fall by going to a forbidden place, first of all. Then by engaging. See, he went, first of all, to a place he shouldn't have been. What happens to places that you shouldn't be in? You get in trouble. And then he engaged in a lustful look. And then by keeping company with a disreputable lady. When you follow that course of action, you are going to end up committing evil sins that you never thought that you would ever commit. How many times have you heard someone say, oh, I could never do something like that? Or, or I can't believe that I did that. That's not like me. And I remember one time I got a call when I was at Golden Springs. And a young girl said, I need, to, I need to talk to you. She said, you know, I, 
I, I sinned. I, I, I kissed another man that I work with. And she goes, I can't believe I did that. She says, that's not me. And I said, with all due respect, that is you. <laughs> that, that is us. And until we recognize I am capable of doing anything, then we won't be on guard. And I said, it, it just takes the right place, or the wrong place, I should say, the timing and everything else, and, and, and you will fall into that sin. Well, now Samson here, he goes to Gaza. Gaza was a degraded place because it wasn't a morally healthy place to be at. So going to Gaza would expose Samson to the evils of a very heathen city. Just like Lot when he was living in Sodom, Peter says of him, he says, in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their, with their unlawful deeds. So Samson would see many sights and hear many things in Gaza that would clash with his righteousness. And we're going to see in a bit that it was particularly a sight that became a problem for Samson. And that's what helped lead him into moral defilement there in Gaza. You see, it makes a lot of difference. It makes a big difference where you spend your time. Spend time in the wrong place, and it's just a matter of time before you will pay a price in character. Samson really defiled himself by going to Gaza, like Lot. Lot defiled himself when he moved to Sodom. Abraham, another guy. Abraham defiled himself when he backslid his way to Egypt. Because that's where he picked up Hagar, and Hagar was a big problem to him and to his wife, Sarah. We have to stay away from places that give our enemy the advantage over us. He doesn't need any more advantage than he already has. Many times we help him out. He gives us plenty of trouble when we're in the right places. So let's not help him any more than, than, than he needs by being in the wrong places. The world and carnal Christians might question why we won't go to certain places and, and, and uh, where, where there's a lot of immorality and you know what they may cause us uh, accuse us of being weird extreme legalistic and oh you you're too good to to go to these places you know holier than thou kind of a thing but it's better to be ridiculed by them than to be damaged by the sin that's there so after samson goes to gaza verse one says he saw a harlot no surprise, it was an immoral place. Well, being in a wrong place where he was bound to see things that he shouldn't be seeing and being around people he shouldn't be around, it happened. Samson's look at the harlot was more than an accidental glance in her direction. You know, sometimes something you catch the sight of something in the peripheral and you look over and you go, okay. And you, but, but Samson's look was... It was a stare. It was, it was, he was gazing at her. And then he begins again to entertain the thought. So, again, his look was more than an accidental glance in her direction. He allowed his eyes to dwell with pleasure at her. And this defiled look led him to commit a very defiling act. And we need to make a note that this dangerous gazing in Gaza wasn't the first time that Samson had trouble with his eyes. 
Remember back in chapter 14, verse 2, he chose an unholy girl in Timnah for his wife because it says he saw a woman. If we don't guard our eyes, we will defile ourselves. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, we read, The sons of God saw the daughters of men, which led to great, uh, great moral ruin of mankind. In Genesis 38, 14 through 18, it says, Judah saw her, speaking of his daughter-in-law, dressed like a harlot, and he defiled himself with her morally. In Genesis 39, 7, we read Potiphar's wife, cast her eyes upon Joseph, and he, she tried to get him to lie with her. In 2 Samuel eleven two, 2, we read David saw Bathsheba bathing. This led to adultery and murder in his life. Those are the incidents that we see where, where the words are, he saw, he saw. Here's the warnings. Psalm 25, 15, Solomon said, My eyes are ever toward the Lord. I'm sorry, David said, My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Job 31, 1. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Psalm 141, 8. But my eyes are upon you, O God, the Lord. Job said this. I was, I'm sorry, again, I, I got several verses here lined up, but uh, the psalmist said in Psalm 101.3, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. Job said in Job 31.1, in the New Living Translation, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust at a young woman. Proverbs 4.25, Solomon said, let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Notice, warning after warning, after warning throughout the scriptures. Warren Wiersbe said, Outlook determines outcome. Hebrews 11.10. Remember Abraham, it says, was the friend of God because he walked by faith. And it says he looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. Notice what he looked for. He looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. Lot became a friend of the world because he walked by sight. He moved toward the wicked city of Sodom. Everybody has some vision in front of them that helps them to determine their values, their actions, and their plans. And we would all be wise to imitate David who said in Psalm 101.3, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. And the psalmist who prayed in Psalm 119.37, Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things. If you are looking unto Jesus as you walk the road of life, then keep that attitude of faith. If you look back or you look around, you just might take a detour. So we need to learn from Samson's failures that we must always be so careful about what we allow, allow our eyes to see and to stay away from places where tempting and appealing sinful sights are a big problem. Many Christians' lives have been ruined because they didn't take the necessary precautions to guard their eyes. Another step in Samson's defilement was the harlot of Gaza. He kept company with her, a disreputable woman. Now, you can't keep close company with people who can make, a, make you or break you. They can and will influence a lot more than we think. And this is why the Word of God exhorts us not to make friends with those with poor character. 
Like the word says in Proverbs 22, verses 24 through 25, it says, Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man do not go, lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your soul. Notice it says, Make no friendship with an angry man. Now, you could replace the word angry with any other kind of evilness. You know, uh, Make no friendship with a cheating man, a lying man, a stealing man, a brawling man. Again, you can substitute any evil word for the word angry, and you still have the same warning because you may learn his ways and it will be a snare to your soul. If you make friends with an evil person, you'll learn their ways and you'll defile yourself. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, bad company corrupts good character. One of David's sons, Amnon, had a friend, Jonadab, who was a very subtle and crafty person. And this friendship that Amnon had with Jonadab led him to commit the evil deed of raping his half-sister. King Jehoshaphat, he got too friendly with King Ahab, the wicked king of Israel. And this ungodly friendship resulted in his getting involved in wicked adventures, nearly losing his life, and his son marrying Ahab's daughter who later on nearly eliminated the line of David from the throne. So the problems of having bad people for friends are a lot greater than a lot of people think. Samson defiled himself morally, but he did it to himself. Can't blame him, anybody else. Where he went, what he looked at, and who he kept company with all laid the groundwork for his moral downfall. One of Satan's favorite and effective ways of destroying God's servants is through immoral behavior. And today, we have seen a lot of well-known and successful preachers fall into a cesspool of immorality. We're often dumbfounded, just blown away, that they would defile themselves like this. But they have prepared themselves for their failure through a series of bad behaviors and attitudes. And if we could closely examine their lives, we'd see that they failed just like Samson did. There was a series of things that brought them their downfall. They were careless about where they went. They were careless about what they allowed their eyes to see. And they were careless about the people they kept company with. And if we're going to keep our purity, we have to always be careful about where we go, what we look at, and the company that we keep. Verse 2. When the Gazites were told Samson has come here, that is to Gaza, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. They were quiet all night, saying in the morning when it is daylight, we will kill him. There are a lot of dangers when we leave the righteous path that God has laid, for, uh, for, laid out for us to walk on. We just saw the moral defilement was one of the dangers that Samson experienced as, result, as a result of his wandering. Now he experiences another danger because of his wandering. It's the danger of losing his life. The Philistines soon found out where Samson was in Gaza. You see, you can't hide your sin for very long. It will find you out. Samson should have known that being in Gaza meant he was going to be discovered. He was going to be found out. Because remember, Samson was Israel's leader. And the Philistines had declared him to be an enemy. So Samson was a marked man. They were after him. They were looking for him. 
So for Samson to think that he could just wander around Gaza like anybody else without being found out is to be willfully ignorant of simple truths. But Samson was blinded by disobedience. So as a result, he foolishly entered the enemy's stronghold, the enemy's territory, without being careful. And he didn't think about the effect that his visit would have on the Philistines. And you know, a lot of people are like Samson. They just don't think they'll be found out when they wander from the path of obedience. For example, professing Christians. You know, maybe they they go on a, a business trip. They just don't think they'll be found out because they're many miles from home. They think no one will ever find out where I go or what I'm doing. You know, if they go to some sinful place or take part in some sinful act, who knows? But then to their surprise and shock, they run into somebody that they know. And it's made known back home. Hey, guess who I saw at uh, Joe's place for lack of, you know, some girly place or something, you know. Guess who I saw there? Yeah, you know that guy that goes to church down the street, you know? Sin always lures people into believing. No one will know. No one will see. No one will find out. But nothing could be further from the truth. Samson will be seen in Gaza, and, you, and he will be seen and found out in his place of sin. And it's the same with us. We will be seen wherever we are. We will be found out in the place of sin. And as soon as the Philistine leaders found out Samson was, was in Gaza, notice what it says. They surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city, at the gate of the city. They were quiet all night, saying, in the morning when it is daylight, we'll kill him. What happened to Samson here is a great picture of the experience of every sinner. First, the enemy surrounds them. Sin doesn't bring freedom. It leads us right into the enslavement of our enemy. A lot of people criticize God's way as being too restrictive. That God wants to rob us of our good times. That he takes away fun and freedom. But in Gaza, the Philistines surrounded Samson to take away his fun and his freedom. If it hadn't been for the grace of God, Samson would have lost his life right there in Gaza. His fun and freedom would have ended on the spot. Matthew Henry said this, Oh, that all those who indulge their sensual appetites in drunkenness, uncleanness, or any fleshly lust would see themselves thus surrounded, waylaid, and marked for ruin by their spiritual enemies. The faster they sleep, the more secure they are, the greater the danger. He said, only if people would see the drunkenness and the fleshly lust, would see themselves surrounded by sin, marked out for ruin by their spiritual enemies. He said, the faster they sleep. When you're sleeping, you're not on guard. The faster they sleep, the more secure they are, but the greater the danger. People play with sin like it was a harmless pet. But while they're playing with it, Playing with sin, it's like a deadly serpent who wraps itself around the sinner and crushes them to death. Crushes the life out of them. Samson in Gaza was having the Philistine serpent, figuratively speaking, 
slowly wrapped itself around him as they surrounded him. And verse 2, notice what it says, they waited for him all night. Satan is very patient. And it's interesting that they didn't attack him right away. You see, they let Samson have his fun at the harlot's house first. They let him go to sleep in his place of sin. They waited until their prey had his fill of carnal pleasure so that they could finish him off. You see, they wanted to do more than just chase him off or injure him. They wanted to kill him. That's your enemy's goal. That's the way it is with sin. Sin doesn't always attack right away. Sin waits until a person is so wrapped up, so, so deep into their sin and ruined by it. And you know what? Here's the thing about sin. A lot of times you don't start feeling the evil effects of sin at the moment you start to sin. You know, it's like the person who, who drinks or does drugs. You know, they drink for years before it takes a hold of them or before it has any effect on their health. But by then, their brain, their lungs, their liver are ate up, destroyed by the drugs and the alcohol. You don't become an alcoholic with the first drink or a drug addict with the first fix or the first pill. Satan and sin is patient about the deception of sin. It's the same way in an unsanctified marriage. It might go on for years without any obvious problems from, again, not listening to the will of God. But sin is patient. And it lets those, those seeds of rebellion grow for a long time so that they will bear an abundance of heartbreaking fruit. You know, after a husband and wife been married for years and they have children, and then Satan, you know, destroys them and those kids are destroyed and the husband and the wife is destroyed. He waits for that. Sin is patient and allows that rebellion to grow. And then it becomes, there, there's an abundance of heartbreaking experience. Many can testify to that, to the deceiving work of sin. They think they're safe from the harmful effects because they didn't experience any, you know, any effects right away. They didn't experience any terrible things when they, when they first disobeyed God. But just because there were no obvious harmful effects at the beginning, even though the harm has already started, that only encourages the sinner to sin more. So that in the end, they suffer more painful. That, you know, God's word said in Ecclesiastes, because God doesn't execute uh, a, a judgment speedily, people think that, you know, well, God doesn't see, God doesn't care, He doesn't mind what I'm doing. And it says, but judgment's going to come. It's God's grace that judgment doesn't come right away. But unless we recognize that and we repent, the enemy is going to have his way. And in the end, it's going to be more painful. It says the Philistines waited quietly all night. You see, they didn't want to give away the fact that they had him surrounded. They had him trapped. And this is very typical of sin. It never tells you the truth. Sin never wants you to know what's really going on behind the scene. Sin is always so hush-hush about what it's really going to do to you, to your life, and to others. Sin wants you to believe there's no problem because it makes sin more effective in seducing man to sin. They said, we shall kill him. You see, that's the final goal of sin. 
What did Paul say in Romans 6, 23? The wages of sin is death. Payday is on the way. It's going to come. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief, Satan, does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. You see, the thief wants to steal the sheep from the fold, slaughter them, and destroy them. This is the plain, simple truth from God's word, which is the most reliable word of all. But experience and history testifies to the same thing. Along with the word of God, the testimony of the past and people's experiences is that sin kills. Uh, it kills your joy. It kills your peace. It kills your health, your marriage, your home. It kills governments, churches, and, and a lot of other good things. The death that sin brings isn't just limited to physical death. It also spring, brings spiritual death, which is the worst death of all. The scripture, the scripture calls it in Revelation 21.8, the second death, which is separation of man's soul from God for all eternity. Samson's wandering certainly appeared to have him trapped by the Philistines in Gaza, but he did escape. Look at verse 3. And Samson lay low till midnight. Then he arose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two gateposts, pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Once again, it was Samson's supernatural strength that came to the rescue. Samson picked up the doors of the gate, the posts, bars and all, and he walked off with them. Now, the gates of the early Iron Age were at least two stories high. So what Samson did was astonishing. It was a great show of strength. But it would have been a, 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 a greater show of strength if he, if he had just ripped the doors off the gate so that he could walk through the gate to freedom. But Samson did even more. He put them on his shoulder and he hauled them off to Hebron. Now, Hebron was about 30 miles from Gaza. And it was mostly uphill. So it would have taken him almost most of the day. So it was a tremendous display of physical strength. And because it was such a great display of physical strength, it, happened to be, it had to be supernatural strength. It was impressive. But as impressive as all of this was, it doesn't make up for his moral weakness that caused him to spend the evening with a harlot. The world is not easily impressed with moral strength as much as it is with physical strength. The world, hey, they will quickly overlook men's moral shortcomings, especially if they can accomplish some, physical, some great physical achievement. So when we look at Samson's great and amazing accomplishment here, we need to put it in perspective. And remember that a greater accomplishment would have been for him to keep himself pure. Maybe you don't have any great achievements in life that anybody would be interested in as far as the world is concerned. But you see, if you are faithful in keeping your morals, you have accomplished something that's much greater than all the worldly achievements of men that the world gets so excited about. Carrying the gates uphill to Hebron, hey, that will impress a lot of people. But Samson, if he would have stayed away from Gaza and, and, and immorality... Man, that would have been a much greater accomplishment. Samson was obviously aware of the plot to catch him, or else he wouldn't have acted the way he did. So knowing the plot, it says he got up at midnight. He arose at midnight to escape from the Philistines' ambush. And at midnight, the Philistine guards would be asleep. 
Alfred Edersheim, a Jewish convert and Bible scholar, said this, During the night they may take their sleep, for are not the gates strong and securely fastened? In other words, the Philistines felt so secure in their plans that they made to catch Samson that they didn't uh, properly take into consideration what Samson had done in the past. All of the great feats of strength that he did in the past to overcome those great odds of being attacked. Samson's cleverness, hey, it's commendable. But how many times do we see men like Samson who seem to be so smart in secular things act so foolish in the moral and spiritual areas which are more important. Samson could plot and he could plan with the best of men. But when it came to his own moral and spiritual situation, he was foolish. He didn't show any wisdom, only foolishness in the most important areas of life. Instead of Samson wisely escaping from the temptations of the devil, he was an easy prey for the devil. And he was truly weak truly weak for what was considered to be a strong man. Samson's deliverance from his wandering dangers was for sure an act of God's mercy. God's mercy. Because Samson deserved to be caught and killed because of his shameful behavior. And and he wouldn't have had anyone to blame but himself if his entrapment in Gaza had ended in his being disgraced and killed. But God, whose mercy endures forever, whose mercy is great, continued to give Samson the strength and cleverness he needed to get out of there. And this isn't the first time that Samson has been saved from dangerous situations, again, because of God's grace. And I look back on how many times I escaped dangerous situations, though I wasn't saved because of God's grace, because I surely would not be here today. But uh, it's going to be the last time that Samson's going to experience God's grace. Because as I said before, as the scripture says before, there are limits to God's grace. As it said in Genesis 6, 3, God said, my spirit shall not always strive with man. Samson didn't let these gracious deliverances by God cause him to think about God. To look back at the times and say, oh man, I remember when God got me out of this mess and I remember how he saved me from this danger and, and, and how he, he didn't look back on those graces of God and, and allow them to change his ways. Instead of letting the mercy of God move him towards repentance and say, man, I got to thank God and go to God for what he's done for me. He let it give him the false idea that, hey, he's immune to the Philistines. And many times because we don't think God cares or sees or is going to do anything or has done anything, that I can go on in my sin. God's not going to do anything. So Samson used God's mercy as an encouragement to continue sinning in the future instead of looking at it in the past of what he has done and repent of his sin. But here's the thing. You can't abuse the grace of God the way Samson did and get away with it. Perverting the grace of God into something that justifies you know, your past sin and encourages you to continue to sin because you think you won't get caught, as Jude 1.4 says, is to turn the grace of our God into lewdness. And that will bring the judgment of God upon any soul. And that will stop the striving of the Spirit of God with any man. So in closing, the next experience 
of Samson recorded in Scripture will show him in trouble without the grace of God to deliver him. And it's a sad no-win situation for Samson. And it brings a terrible end to what had promised to be a great career for Samson in God's service. Let's pray. Father, once again, we come before you in Jesus' name. And Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these examples of, of what not to do, Father. Help us to glean from the word, from your word, Lord. Help us to stay on that path of righteousness that you have set before us. And as the psalmist said, your word is a lamp to our path and a light to our feet. And as long as we're in your word, God, we will establish our paths. We will know where to go. We will know where not to go. And Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for being our light. To be our, for being our God, our signposts. And Father, may we continue to look unto Jesus as the author and the finisher of our faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.